I'm not going to talk much about the political background to this paper. Um, I'm sure you all are, are much more familiar than I am with the history of late 19th, early 20th century Ireland. You know about the rise of nationalism, the Home Rule movement, um, the uh, Sinn Féin, um, emergence of Sinn Féin as the leading nationalist party after 1916, the War of Independence, partition, and um, all the other um, political events connected with this period. Um, what I'm going to talk about is several hypotheses about their impact upon medicine and the medical profession. And I'm going to divide uh, the paper up into two. Uh, first of all, starting uh, about pre-partition um, days, and then um, going on to talk about post-1922 developments. Um, I'm also going to speak to you under headings. Um, the um, first heading I'm going to talk uh, to you uh, around is um, a heading called Divisions Before the Border. I'm going to suggest that there are divisions in Irish medicine which precede partition, and the discussion that follows suggests that they were, on the whole, however, contained reasonably successfully within the profession. Uh, this was, I'm uh, going to argue, because of community of shared interests among the medical professions. And I'm going to argue that if doctors had a sense of grievance, it was usually not political but professional. Nonetheless, I'm um, going to draw your attention to the fact that sectarian division was common. It was a common feature of medicine in the years preceding partition, particularly in competition for posts in the poor law service. And in 1868, an editorial in the Journal of the Irish Medical Association quoted from advice given in their columns to the new medical graduate. It said, The first thing he will discover is that as well as a medical and surgical qualification, he must also have a religious one. That is to say, he must belong to the sect suited for that particular appointment. He will very soon find that a Catholic Astley Cooper would be perfectly ineligible with one board of guardians, as a Protestant Bro Benjamin Brodie would be another, and he will therefore do well to examine the list of electors carefully from a religious point of view before he incurs further expense. The fact that religious considerations played a part in the practice of medicine was, however, not unknown in other parts of the British Isles. It wasn't certainly unique to Ireland. For example, Ramsey Brown, in a guide to, the me to medical practices published in 1946 for the uh, UK, noted that in certain areas, particularly at Liverpool and Glasgow, to quote, religious differences are still strong, and if, for instance, a Protestant doctor buys a Catholic practice, he may find that the practice disappears. However, in Ireland, I would argue, religious denominationalism was increasing rather than diminishing in late 19th century Irish medicine. The growth of the Catholic voluntary hospitals, uh, um, hospitals in, the late 19th, in the 19th century and the foundation of the Catholic University Medical School in 1854 led to an entrenchment of the denominational character of Irish medical education. These institutions, however, played in other, from other directions a very positive role because they facilitated the increase in Catholic entrance to medicine. Entry of Catholics into the professions in the 19th century and early 20th century was generally increasing, but this increase was particularly strong in medicine. Nonetheless, these institutions also led to the situation 
where medical education was, by the time of the Home Rule Crisis of 1912-13, to 13, more religiously divided than it had been in uh, 1860. TCD, Trinity, by the late 19th century, strongly disputed the reputation of being a denominational school. But if we accept TCD as being associated in the public mind as an Anglican foundation, in 1860, 15% of medical students were being educated in two institutions, Trinity and the Catholic University, with an historic or current connection to a religious denomination. By 1905, it was 47%. Though the Queen's colleges of Cork and Galway were non-denominational by statute, their incorporation into the National University of Ireland in 1908 signalled a growing Catholicisation of their atmosphere. As the president of Cork, Alfred O'Rahilly, stated in 1943, our students are over 90% Catholic and we do not intend to ignore this fact. Negative non-denominationalism does not appeal to us in Cork. Hospitals, too, tended to be associated with religion. This meant a medical career had to be constructed around these limitations. A Queen's graduate from the 1960s, who eventually went on to a distinguished career in America, told me in a personal communication that there was an expectation that as a Catholic in Northern Ireland, his subsequent internship would be served in the Mater Hospital, the only major Catholic hospital in the North. He found this frustrating and confining. This was particularly unsettling after an education in which there had been some religious mixing and in which his talents had been recognised and encouraged. So the individual leaves for a postgraduate study in America and remained in the USA, carving out a career there. But he still returned to meetings of Queen's alumni, Queen's Belfast alumni, indicating that even if a medical education in a religiously mixed environment was still possible in Ireland, there was still a second barrier in the choice of hospital in which to train. Another issue which encouraged, if not segregation, at least a feeling of difference among students at the turn of the last century was Catholic medical ethics, mainly in obstetrics and gynaecology. And at the end of the 19th century, Catholic unease centred around the practice of craniotomy, that is, the crushing of the baby's skull during an obstructed birth to save the life of the mother. The problems this gave rise to is illustrated by the experience of Patrick Kane. Kane, a Catholic who graduated from Queen's University Belfast in 1915, um, spent subsequently most of his life as a GP in Doncaster. And this is a, his account of a class on obstetrics at Queen's Belfast from a memoir of his life which he deposited with his old alma mater. The professor of gynaecology liked to pose impossible, difficult problems taking place at the back of the binion, a Northern Ireland expression for way out. That is the kind of place where you could not find a nearby lamppost to surreptitiously consult your medical aides to gynaecology. This particular problem could only be solved by removing the baby in pieces if the mother was to be saved. There were three or four Catholics in the class. One was pale-faced, fair-haired and with glasses which pinched his nose, giving him a nasal intonation. The professor turned to him and said, Mr. Paul, what would you do in this case? Your church does not allow you to kill the child to save the mother. Immediately, the student replied, I'd tell them to get to the nearest Protestant doctor and let him do the killing. <laughs> Countervailing forces. And there were. Common professional discontents drove Irish medicine along many of the same paths as its British counterpart. The Irish profession, like the British, 
wanted recognition of medical qualifications and, a and the diminishing in of unqualified medical care. And it secured this in 1858 when Irish practitioners were part of the great reforming movement which set up the medical register. Irish representation on the General Medical Council set up by the 1858 Act to oversee the profession was generous. In 1905, there were seven representatives from Ireland on the GMC. Three were from, respectively, the College of Physicians, the College of Surgeons and the Apothecaries Hall. Added to this were university representation, representatives from the University of Dublin, Trinity College, and one from the University of Ireland, representing the medical schools of the Queen's Colleges. Additionally, there was a Crown appointee and one directly elected representative, about which I'll talk more later. This compared with 17 representatives from England and nine from Scotland, and the Lancet in 1906 pointed out that Ireland, with only round about 2,500, slightly more medics in their estimation, uh, compared to over 24,000 in England and, and nearly 4,000 in Scotland, was relatively well served. In 1908, following the Irish Universities Act, the Catholic Medical School becomes the medical school of UCD, and it was awarded its own GMC representative. Unity of the alleged stinginess of the local government board, the depredations of boards of guardians and dispensary committees, produce a produced a powerful sense of community among Irish doctors. If anything, for long periods of time, the divisions in the profession reflected social status and economic difference rather than political or sectarian issues. The practitioner in Ireland's rural west who felt the brunt of difficulties in making a medical living were particularly militant against the domination of Dublin. This survived partition. A co in correspondence to the Irish Medical Association in 1936, one letter writer complained about, to quote, the utter contempt in which you in Dublin held us, who are compelled to earn our living trudging through bogs and mountains, a very familiar <laughs> theme of the Western doctor, in hail, rain, snow, unknown and uncared for, while you enjoy the feel of plush carpets, luxurious motors leaving you at the doorstep to sit in centrally heated houses. Also creating unity were the professional organisations themselves. The IMA was specific to Ireland, but the British Medical Association represented Irish interests too. The BMA had an Irish committee, and from 1914 an office in Dublin and a full-time secretary, Dr Thomas Hennessy. Though the Irish Medical Association sometimes felt that there was insufficient militancy by the BMA on Irish issues, or a full understanding of Irish problems, they did accept its support and help, which was usually and generally forthcoming. In any case, membership of the IMA and the BMA overlapped. However, significantly overall, only a minority of Irish practitioners belonged to either organisation. John P. Shanley estimated in 1969 that the IMA averaged around 300 members, the BMA 600, with 800 doctors belonging to neither organisation. From time to time, discussion of the value of merging both into one Irish professional uh, body arose. Uh, for example, the opposition of Irish doctors to several aspects of the insurance bill in 1911 led in the same year to the creation of an Irish joint conjoint committee to, to intensify Irish representation over aspects of the insurance bill. The committee survived the First World War and was in operation in the early 1920s. But it did not lead in the 20s to any permanent body uh, being set up. 
In the 1930s, however, uh, a reciprocal arrangement was made between the BMA and the IMA, so you get the emergence of a joint um, Irish um, medical association, uh, which um, was something to which, even before partition, many Irish doctors were attempting to bring about. Now, in spite of the finally countervailing um, these uh, forces of um, conflict and division, the, in spite of Catholic medical ethics, there was, I would argue, a medico-scientific ethos which bound together the profession. This is demonstrated by the foundation of the Research Defence Society in the UK in 1908 in response to anti-vivisection agitation. A year later, in 1909, this called a, a meeting in Dublin at which 700 people were present. And eventually, in 1919, it still had 400 members. It offered a home to the very Reverend W. Delaney, SJ, President of UCD, and Dr. Anthony Trail, First Medical Provost of Trinity. Whilst denominationally and politically far apart, certainly in 19... Um, during the, after the First World War, both shared a common aim of defending their medical schools and particularly their anatomy uh, departments from the vivisection, anti-vivisection anti movement. Finally, there was another strong interest binding the Irish doctor to his British counterpart. Around 40%, uh, in some decades much higher than that, 40, around 40% 40 of Irish medical graduates settled in Britain or took service in the British Army or Colonial Service, particularly the Indian Medical Service. Next heading, were doctors West Britons? In the First World War, the magnitude of Irish medical involvement in the affairs of the United Kingdom was revealed. I've got some figures here about participation of UCD graduates in the First World War. Um, Probably they need going over and tidying up, but my first preliminary survey suggests that the, in the list of war service compiled at the end of the Great War, 478 graduates and undergraduates served in the forces. Of these, 323 were medical. They included 10 on the college staff, of which 8 were medical. 16 of the 43 killed in action from UCD are identified by a medical degree. And of the 20 Distinguished Service Medals, 16 went to doctors who also took 36 of the 47 military courses. Six OBEs all went to doctors, generally for administrative and organisational leadership. And also seven Croix de Guerre were awarded to UCD graduates. Six of these Croix de Guerre were awarded to medics. The rallying to the flag happened on the expectation that at the conclusion of war, home food for Ireland would ensue. But regardless of this, it posed problems for those nationalists who sought a more permanent and total separation. This is perhaps why, among some of them, there was a deep suspicion about the medical profession. D.P. Moran, editor of The Leader, had doctors in his sights in the years leading up to the First World War. His complaint then was that the Catholic middle class, or the medical part of it, had become focused on economic and professional success, attributes not, in his view, always compatible with his more frugal and fanatical devotion to the nationalist cause. The rise of the Catholic doctor was a sign of social divisions appearing within the Catholic nationalist community. 
As dangerous as that was their integration within the medical institutions of Britain, and following on that, their reluctance to embrace the problems that might arise from a truly independent island standing on its own. Were they, therefore, an insidious fifth column of West Britons whose loyalty to the nationalist vision could not be guaranteed? A writer in The Leader in 1925 described Irish doctors as, to quote, a poor, anglicised, shonen lot, mostly recruited from the first generation of Gombean or other parents who wanted a doctor in the family. Okay, that's one side of the equation. I'm now going to move on to um, 1922 and the effects of partition. First um, heading is reorganisation. Under the Government of Ireland Act, which set up the two Irish states, health insurance was excluded until an agreement between the two parts of Ireland could be achieved as to a joint scheme of management. But in 1922, the Northern Ireland government demanded and received the right to administer their own scheme, thus putting paid to any joint cross-border institution dealing with insurance. In the South, the workhouse system had already been dealt a, a mortal blow by the Troubles, but this was an opportunity for a thoroughgoing reform Whereas the Northern Ireland government retained the workhouse system until 1939, the government of the Free State embarked upon an ambitious reorganisation, and in 1925, the Local Government Act created county boards of health to subsume the medical functions which had been carried out under the old poor law. And this created the county medical officers and a committee drawn from local government to supervise them. The Rockefeller Foundation, who were hanging about in Ireland in the 1920s, believed this to be an ambitious scheme and hoped it would lead to substantial progressive improvements in the delivery of healthcare. It noted, however, how slow the implementation was and the degree to which plans for reform were hampered by patchy delivery and financial constraints. Nonetheless, it contrasted this with the conservatism of the North, who retained the poor law for a decade after it had been dismantled in Britain. Northern Ireland's chief advantage, however, was in a continued regional subvention from Westminster. But given the tight economic constraints on the UK government in the 30s and their reluctance to embark on major health reform, its value was limited. It certainly led to constant irritation between Stormont and Westminster during the interwar years. Um, this um, brief paragraphs are about what is going to begin after 1922, which is a kind of institutional drift of the two health systems uh, in Ireland in different directions, sometimes inadvertent, sometimes deliberate, um, etc. Now, next heading is the Medical Register and the General Medical Council in Ireland. No reorganisation of medicine to encompass the new borders was more divisive, however, than the attempt from 1924 by the Government of the South to set up its own separate register and disciplinary body. This effectively challenged the authority of the GMC, who ran the UK and Colonial Register. The problem for Irish doctors was that the right of, of, of their right to be included on the British Register guaranteed their access to employment in Britain and the colonies. But this right came about because the GMC included Irish schools for the purposes of visitation and evaluation. The attitude of doctors was broadly favourable to an Irish register, a separate Irish register, but to quote, so long as emigration proceeds. 
However, this was by no means clear at the start of this process. The possibility arose of a significant diminution of the powers of the GMC in Ireland, which would put automatic registration on the UK list in danger. The Irish medical profession in the South fought their own government in this, on this issue. The vast majority was hostile to any break with the GMC, and in the end a compromise was achieved, but one in which GMC inspection of Irish medical schools continued. Changes in personnel. More significant for medicine, though there was a degree in co of continuity in the main medical institutions, there was also a process by which previously prominent medical men, and now we have to say women, were removed from their positions of eminence. In 1922, the College of Physicians put forward three names, and the College of Surgeons two, as medical representatives to the newly constituted Irish Senate. But, to quote, they were puzzled and disappointed that none of the persons recommended by the Royal Colleges had been accepted. Instead, the appointees were George Sigerson, H.L. Barneyville and Oliver St. John Glockerty. All three were qualified medical men with long-standing connections to the nationalist movement. And, in, more importantly, perhaps for the incoming government, pro-treaty. In 1926, the Registrar General, Sir William J. Thompson, retired from the post he had held from 1909. There was no replacement, and the collection of statistics became a responsibility of an official at the newly constituted Department of Local Government and Public Health, which had taken over from the old LGB. There was already a Catholic medical elite in waiting to take over positions of medical influence. Take, for example, one of the cohort of 1875 graduates from the Catholic University, the Right Honourable Michael Francis Cox. In 1922, Cox replaced Sir James Craig as president of the Royal College of Physicians in Ireland. Cox had been a member of that institution since 1892. Cox was a luminary of sorts in the old system. He was a member, for example, of the Privy Council in Ireland. But he also, according to his own words, qualified for the new order because, to quote, feeling himself out of sympathy with the government, that is the British government, he resigned his membership of the Privy Council two years ago. The changes were not all nationalists for anti-nationalists. This was a very uneasy period between the pro and anti-treaty forces, including medicine, or at least so anecdotally. Robert Collis in his memoirs described the medical elite in Trinity as conservative medically and politically, and who regarded the representative of the new government in health as an ex-guerrilla leader. At the same time, Collis considered University College Dublin as, to quote, divided inside itself after the Irish Civil War. Henry Moore, professor of medicine at UCD, was, however, pro-treaty. The new Irish Minister of Health, though knowing nothing about medicine, according to Collis, was a friend of Moore. And, and he quotes, between them, they managed to pour cold water onto the Rockefeller Foundation proposal of a double, Dublin medical school run by TCD and UCD. Right. Divisions among doctors. During the War of Independence, doctors faced certain dangers, particularly travelling at night and during curf curfews, which were imposed by both sides. The hated, in D.P. Moran's view, the hated doctor's motor car were actually, during this period, frequently seized uh, by um, the guerrillas um, for their own use. 
There had also been intimidation of dispensary doctors during the War of Independence, directed at those who would not accept the authority of the Doyle Committee set up to replace the local government board, or who gave medical aid to policemen or ex-servicemen. And some threatening words were issued, which were noted by alarm in, uh, by the Lancet and the other medical press. Some as yet doc undocumented emigration north by Protestants certainly occurred during this time, some of which may have been medical. There were also clear signs of different the, of the border imposing, inevitably, different directions upon doctors. And here we come to the example of Dr. Leonard Kidd of Enniskillen. He'd been a leading figure, the secretary in the Irish Medical Association, and he decided to stand for a, the representative seat on the GMC, which was up to, for con contestation in 1906. He stood on the platform of empowering the provincial GP. Kids had a leadership role in the Irish Medical Association in the campaign 1903-4 for better remuneration for poor, uh, law, poor law doctors. He played a leading pro role in this. In fact, it was he was one of the major uh, persons who, who uh, conducted the campaign. And this secured him a significant following. He was pitted against the existing representative, Sir William Thompson, an important scion of the Dublin medical world. Kidd won on the narrowest of margins. I think it was 909 votes uh, cast as against 901. He went on being elected year after year. He exemplified IMA militancy and the special position of the Irish doctors. But his later days, he died in 1941, were spent within the borders of Northern Ireland. He was a, a pupil at, he had been a pupil at Potora, Keen Rugby Farm, and a long-term Enniskillen, um, uh, inhabitant of Enniskillen. And this inevitably shifted his attention away from Ireland as a whole to the particular um, character of the Northern Irish medical experience. One of his last contributions to the cultural life of the medical profession was an article in the Ulster Medical Journal in 1938 about the future development of the British Ministry of Health. It illustrates the effect of the border in refocusing previously common interests on, uh, onto uh, ones which were now politically bounded. Um, one thing I've just briefly mentioned here, of course the um, Dublin Journal of Medical Science was after in the 1920s, renamed the Irish Medical Journal and Ulster got the Ulster Medical Journal in the early 1930s, which was found, founded there, which also indicates a kind of refocusing in the, um, within the constraints of the border. Next, cultural differences. A new import appointments board was set up, which effectively uh, controlled the lobbying that went on at local government and appointment boards for uh, public uh, jobs. And, and it, it did reduce the sectarianism, which had been such a feature of appointments. It certainly did not reduce uh, the political conflict over posts, however. From my reading in the 1930s, there was one astonishing episode at Loch Cray where the um, 100 policemen had to be um, uh, posted in Loch Cray so that the dispensary doctor could assume his post 
he was opposed by um, the Locre inhabitants, or many of them, and there, were, there was bitter and even fighting taking place. And this had nothing to do with religion, by the way. There were some other political issues which had nothing to do with um, the border going on there. So it, dispensary posts still remain the site of great competition and aggravation. Right, so though the Appointments Board acted, acted scrupulously as far as religious discrimination, I think the real problem for the Protestant minority was through the Irish Language Acts. In 1926, Irish language was made compulsory for appointments in education, etc. Extra marks in exams for public appointments and in promotion were shown to those who showed a proficiency in Ireland. This covered the medical posts of dispensary doctor, tuberculosis officer, medical officer of health, the medical staffs of public room, hospitals, sanatorium and asylums. In reality, there were never enough Irish speakers to go round, but there were sufficient to irritate much of the medical community, Catholic and Protestant alike. <laughs> Given that learning the Irish language and nationalist politics had in the preceding decades become strongly linked, the provisions certainly, as Roy Foster pointed out, acted as a ladder of opportunity and social mobility for a relative small coterie of strongly culturally uh, nationalist medical doctors associated with the Irish Revolution. The measure had in the view of Dr Thomas Hennessy, Secretary of the Irish Branch of the BMA, in his discussion in 1928 of a bill to bring legal practitioners within the purview of the language measure, something of the jackboot about it. It was not in his opinion of value to the medical profession. To quote, he could quite understand medical students and lawyers for that matter, but especially medical students, going to England and spending their £1,500 to get qualified there, and at the same time cultivating the customs and business habits of the country in which they expected to live, referring to the possibility of emigration again. In 1931, the Lancet complained about an advertisement for a consultant ophthalmologist stating that knowledge of Gaelic on the part of the ophthalmologist will not hasten by a moment the revival of the Gaelic tongue. Also important were interventions in medical practice as a consequence of Catholic moral doctrine, again very well known, the ban on the censorship act, uh, act of, by the Censorship Act of 1929 on disseminating information on or advocating birth control. And this demand would, one, doc, one doctor stated in 1928, take many back because of the virtual branding of propaganda in favour of birth control as indecent. And subsequently, the 1935 Act uh, banned the manufacture or importation of contraception. In the North, I've concentrated on the South, but what's going on in the North? Well, obviously, the medical profession there was not so easily detached from the general ethos of British me the medical profession. But there were other effects on the border. Free movement of labour existed between all parts of the United Kingdom and Ireland, it, and, and Ireland and Britain. This did not preclude, however, attempts on the part of the Northern Ireland government to restrict the flow of labour to the north. This was particularly the case in the Second World War, uh, where, when full employment attracted increased migration across the border, and it became politically very unpopular because, as described by Henry Patterson, it was resentment at what was perceived to be the peaceful penetration of Ulster by Catholics, who took the jobs of Protestants who had volunteered for military service. So it's a topic... And the medical profession was not above these considerations. 
This arose once again in the particularly contentious area of dispensary post. The, in 1935, a circular from the Northern Ireland Ministry of Home Affairs required medical officers appointed into, to dispensary posts in Northern Ireland to be of British parentage and to have lived for five years in Britain or Northern Ireland. This was condemned by Newry Council, a town on the border, and in 1935, they, had, they in fact had appointed a Monaghan doctor from across the border to the post of Mullough Glass Dispensary in defiance of the ban. The unfortunate doctor now resident in Armagh in Northern Ireland contested his exclusion. He claimed to be a British citizen of British parentage. And in fact, he was appointed on November the 14th, 12, but 12 days before the order was issued by the ministry. This thereafter followed two years of prolonged um, legal wrangling. Uh, and for, unfortunately for him, his claim was dismissed in 1937 by a court in Belfast. The introduction of the National Health Service into Northern Ireland increased the fears of the North. And there is a, everyone who's done Northern Ireland history will know about the Safeguarding Employment Act of 1948, which was an attempt by the Stormont government to control the flow of labour into Northern Ireland. But serious discussions went on about applying it to medical personnel. Uh, the argument was that the National Health Service, by creating the possibility of an increase in practices available, in Northern Ireland had led to some southern doctors, at least according to anecdote, to move north. In, uh, it was discussed quite serious, but seriously by the Ulster Unionist Council in the early 1950s. In 1951, the Executive Committee it considered a resolution from Mid and West Tyrone that the Parliament of Northern Ireland be requested to carry into effect legislation to ensure that only professional men born in Northern Ireland and GB were employed under the National Health Service of Northern Ireland, and the doctors, dentists, chiropodists, and other professionals born in era be precluded from taking advantage from the, uh, of the higher health service in Northern Ireland. It was eventually um, rejected, but Brian Faulkner commented at the time, that the people of Tyrone have a great feeling about it. This episode illustrates the strengthening of the religious medical segregation which was detectable in, uh, from the early um, 20th century. For example, in 1908 to 9, 94.5% of all students at Queen's Belfast were from Ireland, of which round about 90% were from the historic nine counties of Ulster. In 1937-8, the proportion from Ulster had risen to almost 97%. There were, during that session, only 25 students from outside Ulster among the 720 recorded as attending for that session. You were, in that, in, at least in that year, more likely to be from the British West Indies, three, than from other parts of Ireland, two and certainly more likely to be from Britain than the 26 counties of independent Ireland. Of course, North and South segregation does pay off for some. The border led indirectly to the emergence of Queen's Belfast as a major medical school in Ireland. In 1860, Queen's medical students accounted for only 11% of the total of first-year students in Ireland, but by 1935, it was 25% of all first students in Ireland. 
In fact, in uh, 1930, it was 34%. Uh, I, one, I don't know, but it may be because of the troubles of the preceding decade that this represents some kind of um, emigration north uh, by um, individuals. The, um, uh, the Trinity Medical School still educated around 18% of first-year medical stu students in Ireland in 1935. Uh, between 1945 to 60, it was around 16% of the, sa the sample. This was far more than the falling population of Protestants in the South, and it shows TCD was still able to attract some Catholics, students from the North, and due to its, its historic reputation from outside Ireland. In fact, 48% of all foreign students in the Southern University system were in Trinity in 1964-5, compared with 20% in UCD. However, as we know, a cold wind blew through Trinity after 1922, and the Trinity-educated doctor entered the demonology of the Irish Catholic Church. Margaret will know all about that. Conclusion. Opinion differed on the future of Irish medicine after the border was drawn. Surgeon McArdle believed in 1922, there can be no doubt but that newfound liberty will cause a rejuvenescence all around and that our profession should be foremost in taking advantage of the heartening conditions that are sure to prevail. Others were not so sure. An editorial on the registration question in the Irish Times in 1925 claimed that Two ideals are at war in this country. One is the idea of international culture, which admits no barrier to the march of science and seeks to keep Ireland at the front, forefront of ever-advancing movement of human thought. The other is the parochial ideal, which put on our country a double bereavement of brain and soul. Maybe the Irish Times was too pessimistic. Collegiate and scientific relationships survived the border. Doctors from both jurisdictions met at conferences of the BMA or in medical discussions in the colleges. Doctors from both sides of the border set up practice in Britain and immigrated increasingly in the 1950s to North America. To an extent, and I'm, I'm not sure what extent, but to an extent they still look to the Royal Colleges in Dublin for qualifications and professional recognition. And some students from the North still went to Dublin for a medical education. A sense of the particularity of Irish medical history survived. The public health systems in both states had common roots, although they were diverging. Many doctors in 1945 had an experienced practice in Ireland before the border. However, undoubtedly, there was gradual administrative and legislative widening between the two states. But I would argue, and I'll finish on this to make this point, perhaps more significant was the cultural and intellectual impact of the border on the Irish medical profession. Was the new state, perhaps in the, particularly in the South, hostile to innovation and enclosed by a self-referential world? Dr. Thomas Hennessy, the Irish Secretary of the BMA, reminded his colleagues that medical science, like all other sciences, acknowledges no territorial or national limitations. And if you are engaged in the process of creating territorial or national limitations, there may be a price that you have to pay. In practice, I would argue, the focus on revival of language and religious particularity were impediments to an international culture in the South. Here, here's my evidence. 
The First World War saw the development in Britain of a Ministry of Health and a concomitant research organisation, the Medical Research Council. In a reply to a query in a letter of the 11th of April 1922, asking for a transfer of a portion of the MRC's funds to the provisional government in the South, cheeky, I thought, but nonetheless hopeful, the MRC stated that there was nothing to stop applications from Ireland to the MRC so long as Ireland retained dominion status, which it did till 1949. But there was a low to non-existent take-up. Bigger, who ran the bacteriology department at Trinity, approached the MRC in the late 1930s. In the 19... And as far as I can see, that was the only major... um, grant that the MRC made. They made some small travel grants and everything like that, but there was just not a take-up, which to me um, illustrates a state of mind. The opportunity was there if they wanted. Similarly, the Rockefeller Foundation writes a great deal about applications from Ireland, uh, particularly from the medical science. By the 1960s, according to my computation of their uh, in, from their archives. Around 11 grants had been made to the arts and arts and sciences in Ireland from the Rockefeller Foundation. A few were small travel and equipment grants. There were only three scientific projects of importance which they had given money to. Two of these, two, of the th- uh, two were awarded to the Growing Genetics Programme at Trinity in the 1950s and 60s. Queen's Biochemistry received uh, a grant in the 1950s. And at UCD, Arthur Conway was given grants throughout the 50s and 60s. Conway was a physicist, but he was using his equipment to look at cell structure, a very important uh, development in biochemistry at that period. Conway was the only recipient in science within the National University of Ireland, apart from the occasional travelling grant, etc., According to Rockefeller, to quote, there is very little, if any, scientific research in Ireland which compares with this, that in this laboratory, and the country as a whole has failed to develop a tradition of even minimal support for such activity. Even though Professor Conway's needs are exceedingly modest when judged by world standards, his work is critically dependent on the small grant from the foundation. This was renewed regularly from 1950. The Rockefeller, which drew up brief research histories, contrasted Conway's situation with that of Professor James DeLarge, head of the Folklore Institute, to which they also made a donation. He, in 1948, was given by the government a budget of 12,000 and new premises on St Stephen's Square, they mean St Stephen's Green, under an economy government that has hit most era budgets. They were... um, astonished at this. Isolation was also hindering the development of medical education. Amalgamation of hospitals, formalising of research within them and putting education in the hospital under the authority of the medical school was seen in the United States as the epitome of modernisation, what in fact characterised modern scientific education. The sweet states may have provided up-to-date equipment and resources, but by the 1940s there were serious worries about the capacity of Irish medical schools to provide an up-to-date science-based education. 
The importance of this became clear in the 1950s when Irish medical graduates were given provisional registration only on the UK medical register due to changes in the 1940s in British education, medical education, which incorporated key concepts from the American model. Worse for the prestige of Irish medicine in 1949, the American Medical Association admitted after inspection, the, uh, omitted after inspection the Irish medical schools of the South from their approved list of foreign medical schools whose graduates met American standards. So just to make some final <coughs> points, to sum up, the seeds of the border were in a sense laid before partition, but they were contained and containable. The border accelerated two things, administrative and legislative drift, cultural change and cultural division. Third, animosity was there and expressed itself in the attitude of the North to um, doctors from the South and in the attitudes in the South to Trinity. But so much remains to be discovered. What does impact pre... pre um, we don't know... We have no clear idea of the impact of all this on day-to-day -day medical education. What I've given you is a generally a, a, a sketch of what was going on. The particular details we don't know. The extent of medical displacement north to south we don't know, or, and from north uh, and south to north. We have what I think is very noticeable, an absence of biographical accounts of the experience of the border. Very uh, doctors tend and other people tend to be very quiet about their experiences, and we need that. And we finally, I haven't, I've touched upon it only um, generally, but the impact of the NHS in the 1940s must have, in fact, accelerated divisions within Ireland on uh, the um, in, in medicine. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>